Families have a lot going on. Let Ollie help manage the mental load with new cognitive health supplements for everyone four and up, like delicious Lolly Focus Pops or Lolly Mellow Pops for kids. And for parents, try three new Brainy Chews to help you focus, chill out, or get energized. Find these cognitive health buddies for the whole fam at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. CrimeCon UK, the ultimate true crime event, returns to London on the 21st and 22nd of September this year. CrimeCon UK is the world's leading true crime event and is partnered by True Crime, the expert-led channel available on your platform of choice. From fascinating sessions with some of the biggest names in true crime to raising a glass with your favourite podcasters, us, CrimeCon UK, us definitely, CrimeCon UK is an unforgettable way for you to really immerse yourself into the true crime community. If we haven't mentioned before, we will be there. So come and join us and quote RED, R-E-D, for your special 10% discount on your ticket. So head to crimecon.co.uk, www.crimecon.co.uk, to book your tickets today. See you there. Hello and welcome to Seeing Red, a true crime podcast. I'm Bethan. And I'm Mark. Welcome back to another episode. And it's a very special episode this week because it's a listener researched and written episode. And that's a huge thanks to Rhiannon Smith, who's done that for us. And um, thank you, Rhiannon. You've done an amazing job on this. It's a fascinating case, which we will get to in a, in a moment. Let's uh, thank our Patreon supporters first, though. Can I say thank you to Rhiannon as well, though? Of course. (laughs) I'm only joking. But yeah, thanks, Rhiannon, because it's always amazing when a listener writes an episode for us. Incredible. So yes, our newest Patreon supporters this week that we have to say thank you to are Sarah Menzies, Ella Gunners, Donna Green, Debbie Appleyard, Julie Duchens and Laura Horncastle. Thank you so much, everybody. Thank you to each and every one of you. Thank you to our existing Patreon supporters as well. If you would like to join these people, all you need to do is head over to patreon.com slash seeingredpodcast and we will be eternally grateful, basically. Um, This week we head to Omar, the county town of County Tyrone in Northern Ireland. Situated around 70 miles east of Northern Ireland's capital city of Belfast, Omar is a charming town steeped in history. Its name is derived from the Irish name Anno May, which translates in English to the Virgin Plain. A monastery was apparently established on the site of the town in about 792 and a Franciscan friary was founded in 1464. Omar was founded as a town in 1610. It would later serve as a refuge for fugitives from the east of County Tyrone during the 1641 rebellion, which was an uprising by Catholics in Ireland, whose demands included an end to anti-Catholic discrimination, greater Irish self-governance and the return of confiscated Catholic lands. William of Orange, the King of England, Scotland and Ireland from 1689, burned the town to the ground during his reign. But thankfully the townsfolk were able to rebuild and re-establish Omar on the map. Today the town is home to 21,000 people and in 1998 it was home to 17-year-old Sylvia Fleming, who is the subject of today's episode. It always is just incredible when you hear, you know, this... The first monastery was there in 792. It's just mad. And to have that much history in a place, it's incredible. And can can you imagine the king today burning a town to the ground? I don't know why he did that, but, you know, he did it. And can you imagine King Charles doing that now? Just kind of like burning Swindon, for example, down to the ground. Weird, isn't it? But thankfully they did uh, rebuild and reestablish the town. 1998 is forever remembered by the people of Omar. On the 15th of August that year, a car bomb exploded, killing 29 people and injuring 300 others. 
The bombing was carried out by the Real Irish Republican Party, an IRA splinter group, who opposed the IRA ceasefire and the Good Friday Agreement, which had been signed earlier that year. This act of domestic terrorism, the deadliest incident of the Troubles in Northern Ireland, was condemned both locally and internationally, and would ultimately go on to spur on the Northern Ireland peace process. For the Fleming sisters, though, 1998 would be remembered for very different reasons, for it was the year in which their beloved sister Sylvia was callously murdered in cold blood. I always find this really weird to think about when something huge happens, whether it's a good thing or a bad thing, but something happens around the time that a tragedy strikes a family and you just think whenever this bit of history is mentioned or whenever something is sparked in the press, they're going to straight away think 1998, that's the year. And, oh, it's just, yeah. We've got a couple of listeners who've shared with us before about having lost a family member around Christmas and that when Christmas comes around, that that goes back in their mind and that person's at the forefront. Uh, Yeah, isn't it? It's just weird, isn't it? Yeah, it's a it's a real trigger, isn't it? So it's like an extra trigger. You've got all those usual triggers. And then when something like this Omar bombing comes up, which it will come up, it's a, a part of history, it will be talked about forevermore. There is that association with a very separate personal tragedy. So yeah, it is weird. I, I completely see see what you're saying, Betham. Sylvia Fleming was born on the 11th of October in 1980. She was the youngest of three children and was adored by her older sisters, Kathleen and Josie. Growing up in the Troubles had its own difficulties for the children of Northern Ireland, but for Josie, Kathleen and Sylvia, they had the added complexity of growing up in the care system. During their early childhood, the girls were raised by their father. However, he had his own problems, and wanting to give his girls the best chance in life, he voluntarily admitted them into care. Whilst in care, sadly, the sisters were the victims of abuse at the hands of the people entrusted to care for them. Kathleen, Josie and Sylvia were close, but actually the abuse brought them even closer. They were each other's moral support and comfort. Josie, the eldest of the trio, took on the mother role and did her absolute best to look out for her younger sisters. Although Sylvia had encountered all of these troubles at such a young age, she really knuckled down at school and she did very well. She was said to have been a sincerely kind-hearted girl and very popular amongst her peers. And she was described as special and people remember her ability to light up a room with her smile and laughter. Isn't it just incredible that you can go from absolute pain and agony and suffering and still want to work hard at school, want to be a kind person, you know, still smiling and laughing, yeah. And to be known for that, and yeah, that must have just been a huge amount of masking on her part to bury that trauma and and hide that and maybe make out everything was okay and that was a way of helping her to think it was. After finishing school at the age of 16, Sylvia began a hairdressing course and she also took up a part-time position as a care assistant at a nursing home. By all accounts, she was happy. She was starting out in the world, making her own money and enjoying life. And she couldn't have been happier when she learned that her sister Josie was expecting a baby. Sylvia was unbelievably excited at the prospect of becoming an auntie. Not only was there a new family member on the horizon, but Josie had also gotten the keys to a new flat and she invited both Sylvia and Kathleen to go and live with her. The next few months passed without incident. Sylvia continued with her hairdressing course and her part-time job at the nursing home and enjoyed the comfort of a family home, just her, Josie and Kathleen. In January 1998, when Sylvia was 17, she and a few friends went to a party at a nearby flat and it was here that she met the man that would go on to become her boyfriend, Stephen Scott, or Bulldog as he was known to his friends, owing to his stocky build. The two hit it off straight away. Sylvia was a beautiful girl and Scott was instantly attracted to her. Scott, who was nearly 10 years older than Sylvia at 26, was employed as a part-time firefighter. See, we were discussing this the other day at work about the age gap, whether it's an issue or not. And we kind of came to the consideration that if you're kind of 20 or under, a 10-year age gap is a big deal. 
it's quite a big difference. Yeah. If these two were like 40 and 50, wouldn't even bat an eyelid. It wouldn't even matter. Even, you know, like 30 and 50 or 35, 55. Like it's kind of, you're both adults, but a 17-year-old and a 26-year-old should be in very different places in their lives. And that 10 year, well, nearly 10 years just doesn't feel right, in my opinion, at that age. I, I think that's fair and it's it's a really important part to this story, this age gap. Um, it really does come into play. And I, I think I'd probably agree. Yeah, I think 17 is, even if she was quite mature for her age at 17, it's still young, you know, only a few years hence and you, you're just a, a young girl, you know. And yeah, he's 26. So you're absolutely right. You should very much at those times in your life be at very different stages. And I think you're right. She would have had to have grown up really quickly. She's gone through a hell of a lot. So she would be very mature. But still, yeah. Yeah. And it, it was problematic, the age gap here. Scott was also a keen bodybuilder and he helped out at a local boxing club for teenagers, many of whom it has been claimed worshipped him. And I think this boxing club worked largely with children from quite disadvantaged backgrounds. So you can perhaps understand how Scott, this real powerhouse of a man, a physically commanding presence, would come to be idolised by these impressionable, vulnerable teenagers who were maybe looking for a role model. And he loved it. Scott loved the attention from these kids. And instead of keeping a professional distance, he befriended them. He would invite them over to his flat where he would allow them to drink alcohol and smoke cigarettes. So just for context, these young people were said to be between the ages of 14 and 18. And not only did Scott allow them to smoke and drink in his home, he would also buy them alcohol and cigarettes. And yeah, don't forget, he's 26 and he is associating and befriending and hanging around with 14 year olds at this point. And to be honest, I can kind of see this. So to a 14-year-old, Scott would have been the king of their world. He would have been seen as a proper grown-up who understood them and treated them like adults rather than children. He had incredible power and influence over them. And this is why he almost exclusively associated with children. None of his peer group was in the same age bracket as him. It's just so creepy. Because actually you can be a really good role model, adult, treat and them, mentor. you know, treat them like adults, give them freedom and responsibilities, but not practically groom them to make them idolise you. Because that's, first of all, completely illegal, buying cigarettes and alcohol for them. But also, it, yeah, it just feels like grooming to me. It does not feel right. And you're so correct, this power, this influence, he's already, he already could get that just from his stature and his position of, of kind of standing in the community. But he's gone that step further. And I just find it really gross. Yeah, I'd not thought of that. But I think you're right. I think there's an element of grooming, isn't there? Because he is targeting children, he's targeting vulnerable children. He's doing those classic grooming things of buying them cigarettes and alcohol and you know you come over to mine it's a safe space you can do what you want and he's allowing them to act older than they actually are and yeah they in turn idolize him so yeah there, there isn't um there is no paedophilia in this uh, no but of course equally not. it's still it's still uh an example of grooming yeah that's uh, yeah i don't mean grooming as in as in that he's going to plan to do something to them at all but and obviously Sylvia is 17 she's it's nothing illegal with her to be in a relationship with her but I just think what's wrong with you as a grown adult if none of your friends are your age and you can't have normal friendships and relationships with people your age you have to get people who are so impressionable there's got to be something wrong with you and I'm sure there is I'm I'm sure there's going to be something horribly wrong with this guy Oh, there absolutely is. And yeah, he's clearly got no self-awareness at all to kind of think, do you know what? I've noticed that I like to associate myself with children. Why is that? What does that give me that people my own age don't? And is that problematic? There's, there's no introspection there at all. 
Sylvia and Scott began seeing each other and ultimately began a relationship. It didn't bother Sylvia that Scott was older than her, and it definitely didn't bother Scott. At 17, she was the perfect age for him, another child to welcome into his fiefdom, someone to idolise him and to feed his ego. Scott was able to dominate and control his younger peers, and Sylvia would be no different. In order to maintain the cult of personality surrounding him, Scott would talk openly of his admiration for violent murderers like Ted Bundy and Charles Manson, and it's even reported that he offered to kill his own sister on behalf of his brother-in-law when the couple were facing difficulties in their marriage. So, you know, his brother-in-law, I guess, has confided in him and said, we're not getting on, she's doing my head in, whatever. And Stephen Scott has said, I'll kill her, I'll kill her for you if you want. How crazy is that? And even if this was like a jokey comment, I don't think there's really anybody normal who would make a joke like that. No, no, it's just, yeah, it's It's just not a normal thing to say. And I don't think it was said in jest. I think it was, you know, I can do that. Wow. And that's his own sister. Yeah, because you could almost understand it if it's your sister saying my, my, husband or your brother says yeah. my my wife because you've got that family connection and and there is that thing isn't there you would do anything for your family you'd do anything of for course, your little sister yeah. or something like that but yeah this is his sister that he's talking about killing yeah so i think that says an awful lot about him not too long after they met sylvia moved in with scott and i really think this would have actually been a honeymoon period for her he would have most likely been love bombing her at this time offering her the world and she was probably imagining a good life don't forget she'd she'd had this really difficult childhood her father had essentially abandoned her albeit i think for the right reasons that was a really brave step for him to voluntarily place his three daughters into care it was the right thing to do but for 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 her, you know, he has still abandoned her. That's how she would have seen it, I'm sure. She has then been abused in the care system. So, you know, yeah, she was very vulnerable and he would have been offering her the world. He was offering her the world. And I think, yeah, she probably thought, this is it. I can have that settled home life that I have always dreamt of. And this man will protect me and he's older than me and he'll be the father figure that I never actually had. And she was working hard at this time, she was earning her own money, she was training to be a hairdresser. Her boyfriend was this handsome firefighter. He's popular in their little world and I think she absolutely loved him, she idolised him and she wanted a normal life and she thought that Scott would give her that. Scott, however, knew he was the centre of Sylvia's world and she certainly wasn't the centre of his. He knew she was vulnerable and he took advantage of that. He started to isolate Sylvia from her family and friends. He would degrade and demoralise her in front of their friends. He tried to peck away at her self-esteem and didn't even care who saw. And I know this is going to be a really obvious thing that I'm about to say, but this is such a red flag to me. I know that will sound obvious, but when someone you love is willing to treat you like shit in front of people who love you, you are absolutely on a hiding to nowhere. And I bet we have all seen this behaviour, not necessarily in our own relationships, but in others, because I've seen this. And it's such an uncomfortable thing to witness when somebody humiliates their partner in front of everybody else. Isn't it just awful? Have you seen that, Betham? I have. And it sounds really odd to kind of say, but at, at least if someone's hiding this behind closed doors and they're able to put on a face in front of people, you know that they kind of care what other people think. But in this scenario, the the horrible person just doesn't even care who sees. And that is somehow even more... I don't know what the right word is, but it just shows just how little they care. They're not even trying to put on a facade and they're so brazen with it. And I'm not saying that it's okay to be nasty to someone in in private and then put on a face. But that at least is showing that you don't want people to know what you're like. In this scenario, and I just think, yeah, if you're ever in a situation where you're made to feel like that and it's in front of all your friends, 100% this is the this is a really big red flag because they do not give a shit about you. I, I think what what it ultimately comes down to is it's sort of two things for me. If somebody does this in public, it means there's a lack of control around their own behaviour. So they can't put that 
pretend face on it. They can't control what they say and what they do. And also they're getting off on the fact that they're humiliating you in front of other people. And it's, I know I mentioned this years ago now, but I don't know if you'll remember, Bethan, but I, I said ages ago that I was out with a couple and uh, this was many years ago, probably 15, 20 years ago. And we were at a bar and we were having a great time. And it was two guys, they were together. And um, his boyfriend hit him. He slapped yes, him around slapped the, him face. Across the face. Yeah. I do remember you saying, because it's In so front shocking. Of us, it was so shocking. I'd never seen anything like it. And, you know, they obviously then had an argument and the, the whole night out disintegrated. And I was quite young at that time, so I didn't really know what to do. I'd handle it very differently now. Um, but I think sometime later when I reflected on it, I just thought, fucking hell, if he is prepared to do that in front of people in a packed pub what the fuck is going on behind closed doors and yeah that's you know it's a real regret of mine that I I don't think there was anything I could have done because I I wasn't very experienced in life at that age but now my god I would handle that totally differently but yeah it's a it's a similar example to what we're seeing here Scott was also a sadist. He enjoyed rough and violent sex, and it's reported that Sylvia had told one of her friends that whilst having sex with Scott, he had put a pillow over her face, resulting in her struggling to breathe. Scott explored his interest in bondage with Sylvia and experimented with tying her up. She was frightened by these experiences, but in a bid to be loved by Scott, she submitted to him. And I think this is where the age gap really kind of comes in, because... You know, she is idolising him like all of these kids at this boxing youth club and she is naturally submissive to him and submitting to his desires and demands because she loves him and he is the centre of her world and he has promised her the earth and she doesn't want to jeopardise that and he knows that and he's taken advantage of that vulnerability in her which a lot of that is to do with her age. And I also... I try really hard not to um, kink shame or to kind of judge people for what they want to do within their own private relationships. But when it's something like a person gets off on putting a pillow over someone else's face so that person struggles to breathe, not the person saying, I want to struggle, you know, it's not my kind of thing. But if you personally enjoy that, it's fucking dangerous. I'm going to tell you, you should probably not do it. But that's your that's your thing, whatever. But when it's the person, and it's usually a man who likes to have the control and the power in a way that is that dangerous for another human being, and that's how you get off, that freaks me out. And that really bothers me. Because what's wrong with some just normal sex? Like, what is so wrong with you that you have to make that person struggle to breathe? And and I'm sure he could quite happily say, well, she she agreed to it, she agreed to it. I'm pretty sure she didn't agree the first time. And she probably went along with stuff because she, like you said, she submitted to him. She was frightened, but she wanted to be loved by him. But he has this interest in bondage. He could go to you know, I don't know what their relationship would be like, whether this would be appropriate for them or not, but he could go to someone where he submits or go to somewhere that is specifically for this, not this impressionable 17-year-old who has been abused in her childhood for his pleasure. Like, I don't know, it just really, really bothered, like a lot of this already is really pissing me off on her behalf. Yeah, complete, completely agree with you. And we're not here to kink shame. And we're not just kind of saying that because that's what people say these days. I'm really not. I'm, personally, I think with anything like this kind of, you know, I, I don't know what they call it with the whole kind of um, withholding breathing and stuff. But that is a thing for some people and they're into it. I'm with you, Beth. And I'm like, please don't do it. It's really dangerous. But ultimately, two consenting adults can kind of do what the fuck they want as long as they're not and breaking the law. It consent is key do whatever you yeah. want as long as both of you actually wanted to do it that's my issue with this yeah but he is exerting an element of power and control over her and even if she is submitting to this deep down she does not want to do this she just doesn't want to lose her boyfriend sylvia's friends and family were starting to become concerned for her safety around this time they didn't know the extent of scott's control over her but still they started to voice their fears to sylvia 
And soon Sylvia too came to realise just how controlling her boyfriend was. And actually, not long after moving in with him, she plucked up the courage to move out and she went to live with a friend. Oh my Which gosh. I think I'm is so a really brave her... move. It is. I'm so glad that her family and friends actually said something to her because it can be really hard to to tell someone something that they do not want to hear or to yeah. say something that you think, well, am I going to upset them? So I'm so glad they did. And she actually then moved out. Fair play to her. Yeah, she listened to them and she heard what they were saying. And yeah, she could see through him at this point. And yeah, it was, you know, he's still going to be pulling the strings to a certain extent, but she's managed to get away from him at this point. A short time after moving out of Scott's flat, Sylvia found out she was pregnant. It wasn't an ideal situation, but Sylvia, thinking this could be the fresh start they needed, was excited to tell Scott the news, if also a little scared. Yeah, and I I can really understand her logic here because she's thinking, you know, this relationship has not been what I thought it was. It's not been what he promised. He has exerted control and dominance over me. But if we bring a baby into this, maybe that will bring out a softer side in him. And, and you don't know, like, change. during that that love bombing element at the beginning of their relationship he's probably said i want to have children with you i want to be a family he's probably said things that he knows she you know because her sisters were her her world her and her sisters they've been in this horrible family situation that they've been in care so he would have known that family and a baby is important. Maybe when her sister had her baby, he'd said to her, oh yeah, I want to have a baby with you. So she's going to then think to herself, right, this is it. This is a, a, you know, a shock and a surprise, but it's going to be what turns this around. And also she's probably thinking this is going to make him happy because I think you're right. I think he absolutely would have been saying, I want to have, you know, I want you to have my babies. I want us to have a family. And she's thinking, wow, this has happened now and I'm going to go and give him this news and it will probably go down well because he said he wants a baby and now we're going to have that. Yeah. So yeah, she took a friend with her for moral support and she went round to Scott's flat and told him that she was indeed expecting his baby. But of course he did not take the news well. He didn't want to commit to Sylvia and he outrageously claimed that she had been sleeping around and that the baby wasn't his. And I can't imagine how of course devastating he said that. of course he would, but I can't imagine how devastating this would have been for Sylvia. And she left upset and dejected. But actually when Scott invited her over a short time later, on Friday the third of April, she was hopeful that all was not lost. So there's these real mind games here of, you know, I want you to have my babies. We then split up. I'm pregnant now. I go around and tell you. And actually, I think this could be our fresh start. No, I don't want it. It's not mine. You're a slag. You've been sleeping around. Then a few days later, actually, why don't you come over? We can talk again. He's just absolutely fucking with a head, isn't he? Yeah. So Sylvia left her friend's home, the friend whose home she'd been staying at, um, that night on the 3rd of April at 11.15 and made her way to Scott's flat. When she arrived, she found Scott had company, a 15-year-old boy and a 14-year-old girl. Of course, they were at the flat. Of course. Of course. Of course, he's got two children around. Neither of these people can be named due to their ages at the time, so for that reason, we're going to refer to them as John and Jane. We now know that earlier in that day, Scott had made a sinister comment to John and Jane about his plan to kill the mother of his unborn child. Now, neither of them took that comment seriously, but I don't think it was said in jest. It was Scott saying, you know, I'm going to kill her. And he was serious. He was deadly serious. Not long after Sylvia arrived at the flat, Scott left John and Jane in another room and led Sylvia to the bedroom, where he plied her with alcohol and Valium and then proceeded to tie her up with various ropes. Sylvia's legs were tied to the foot of the bed, A cord which was wrapped around one hand, looped up and around her neck, then round to the other hand, kept her tied to the headboard. And I know that will be difficult to imagine and to kind of follow, but this is a really sort of intricate way of tying somebody up, where you're using their body against them. So whenever they're trying to struggle or move, they're actually going to be pulling the cord tighter around their neck. So, you know, very much... He must have researched ways of tying people up and, and, and he was applying that research here. Scott blindfolded Sylvia and gagged her with tape, knowingly covering most of her nose in order to make breathing difficult. 
As she lay there tied to the bed in a haze of alcohol and diazepam, Scott had sex with her. After at least an hour of being bound and gagged, Scott carefully opened a bottle of insulin. Knowing he was holding a potential poison when entered into the wrong bloodstream, he drew it into a syringe, ready to experiment. He wanted to see what would happen to Sylvia if he injected her with this. Unable to move or resist, she was powerless, as Scott did just that. He injected her with insulin. Sadly, she couldn't have stopped him if she tried. Still bound and now under the effects of insulin, Scott left the room and left Sylvia all alone. And we don't know how long she was left alone for. Oh my God, Mark, this is horrendous. It's It sort of adds another level, I think, with this injecting her with insulin because we sort of hear lots about people being... Um, incapacitated with alcohol and drugs like diazepam or GHB, for example, when we covered Stephen Port. Um, but this is this is just weird to to use insulin. You know, we obviously had access to it, and it was it was really down to I want to experiment and see what this does to her. She is now my guinea pig, and I do not value her life. She's worthless to me. Let's see what this does. I want to know what it does. So let's use it on her and see. And I feel like the fact that she knew that she was pregnant when he's then plying her with drugs and alcohol, that would have been going through her mind as well. Yeah. And yeah, and then not being able to breathe properly. The fact that if she struggled when he's trying to inject her, she's actually going to end up hurting herself more. You can just imagine the terror, this poor young girl. Yeah, and she wasn't unconscious when she was injected, I don't think, from reports. So she would have not really known what was going on, but she would have felt that needle going into her. It was injected into her leg. So she would have felt that and and been thinking, what the hell is going on? But she's gagged and she's blindfolded. She's unable to speak and she's unable to move in any way to resist this. She is literally powerless at this point. When Scott returned to Sylvia sometime later, on the morning of the 4th of April, he brought John and Jane with him. Sylvia wasn't moving. He claimed later in court that he checked for a heartbeat, did a few chest compressions and removed the tape from her mouth, but that it was too late, that she was gone. And that is the case, she had died. Scott and John lifted Sylvia's body and placed her in the attic. His job was done and seemingly, without a care in the world, he headed to the local swimming pool for a swim. Which Scott did. Yeah. I just, these these two as well, Jane and John, no matter what situation they found themselves in, they're now in a position where they've witnessed a person who has been murdered, dead, and they've, like, I mean, as in they've witnessed someone who has been murdered and they found this person dead. Like, that is a major trauma to go through and I don't know their background I don't and maybe we'll come on to more about them I'm not sure but um no matter what their scenario was that is a huge huge thing for somebody to to kind of force them to be a part of and no matter how big this bravado was or the the bragging or even Scott saying I could kill this person I could do that you're not going to ever genuinely think it's going to happen and and then you're just a witness to this scene I am um, I really do feel for them too as well and I don't know if I should I don't know if they're just not great people either but they're so young what were they 14 and 15 I just there's just so much in this this guy Scott is just holding court to all these young people and he's actually the worst person in the world to do that. Yeah, he's so dangerous. Yeah, John was 15 and Jane was 14 at the time that this happened. And we we won't delve into their backgrounds. We can't do that. There is some information out there, but Mm -hmm. we can't talk about it because it could potentially identify them. But we will talk about what exactly happened that fateful night and what part they played and what the consequences were for them. But I do agree, they they were under Scott's spell. He was absolutely controlling them, intimidating them probably, and they had no choice but to comply with him. The following day, Scott was startled by a knock at the door. It was Josie and Kathleen, Sylvia's sisters, together with a close friend. They were concerned for Sylvia. They hadn't seen her since Friday night, and they asked Scott if he had seen her. 
Josie looked towards the attic and the calculating Scott, witnessing this, gestured his guests into the sitting room. Josie would later say that she looked up at the attic and really did think that Sylvia's body could be up there and that she could have come to harm at Scott's hands and that he was hiding her there. She just sort of had this almost sixth sense as she walked into the flat, looked up at the hatch and just, and Scott clocked it and saw her do that and she must have seen it in his face, that look of guilt or, oh my God, why is she looking up there? Does she know? And he sort of awkwardly, quickly ushered them into the living room away from, from, from there. Which I thought was really interesting that, yeah, she just almost had this sixth sense that my sister's up there. Yeah, it's horrible, isn't it? That she just kind of knew. Yeah, I think she did on Mm. some level. I really think she knew. So when questioned, Scott claimed he hadn't seen Sylvia and that he too was concerned for her safety. Indeed, Josie would later reflect that he did appear to be highly agitated. Josie, Kathleen and the friend left Scott's flat and contacted the police to report Sylvia as missing. As they gave details to the police, Scott commanded help to deal with Sylvia's body. He took £25 from Sylvia's pocket and sent Jane to the shop to get black bags and cleaning products. John and Scott then moved Sylvia's corpse from the attic to the bathroom where they placed her into the bath and cleaned her body thoroughly in order to remove any traces of DNA. And I just thought, I mean, this is just so incredibly undignified. She would you know her corpse is in that bath naked and John 15 year old John is there and Scott cleaning her and removing any traces of DNA I just it does not bear thinking about Scott proceeded to brutally dismember Sylvia's body after they cleaned her using a hacksaw He cut her up into eight pieces, placed her remains into black bags which he then placed into plastic boxes which he then placed back into the attic whilst he decided what to do next. Manipulating John and possibly Jane to help him dispose of some of Sylvia's remains, Scott was cunning but he wasn't clever. Unsure of what to do next, he rang his good pal 19-year-old Paul Rigby and told him that his girlfriend Sylvia was missing. Rigby was in England with his wife Emily Horne, but he returned home to Northern Ireland to support his friend. The two met up and Scott confessed to his friend that Sylvia was in fact dead and that he needed help disposing of her remains. Scott told Rigby about the insulin but insisted that John had caused Sylvia's death by pulling on the cord that was wrapped around her neck. Rigby, although only 19, was older than most of Scott's usual crowd of friends and he was a soldier. He should really have known how wrong this was. He should have walked away and called the police. But he didn't. He chose to help his friend out. That's just so horrible. Like, anybody normal, you are told this has happened and you're like, well, why haven't you called the police? Why have you done that? Why didn't you tell the police that John had done X, Y, Z? Yeah, you'd be like, it's not your fault. You're telling me that John's John's done it. John's killed her. You can't cover this up. They're going to be looking for her and they may find a body and then it's going to come back to you. So, yeah, yeah, he should have absolutely just said, you know, yeah, he's only 19, but he's working full time. He's a grown ass man. He's got a wife. Um, He should have known that this was absolutely wrong, but actually he was a very weak man and we will talk a little bit more about Paul Rigby later on. But a very interesting aside here that Rhiannon has mentioned, and I think this sort of inspired her to cover this case for us, and you're going to love this, Bethan. Emily Horne, the wife of... Paul Rigby, who was the friend of uh, Stephen Scott, yeah, um, we've covered uh, her case. So she, um, she was the serial bigamist that we covered oh, a few years ago. Wow, yeah. is she the one that had like six or seven husbands? Has been yeah. convicted like twice and yep. didn't give a shit about the fact that she was bigamist. Yep, and this was her very first That's husband. Interesting. And apparently she later said in her defence that she couldn't face him to seek a divorce once she knew that he had been a part of this horrific crime. She she just kind of like buried it in her head and sort of moved on to the, you know, the next uh, oh, fiancé and husband. Not be, I'm not sorry, sure but I believe there's, that. there's quite a few reasons to get a divorce and I'm pretty sure I'd like a divorce from my husband because he helped someone cover up a murder. I'm pretty sure that's on the list of things. I, yeah. She and also she just loved bigamy, didn't she? I'm I'm sure she, she was one of like six or seven. It. So, yes, 
oh, I'm going to have to go back and listen to the Bigger Me in the UK episode. That was such a long time ago. It was a long time ago, yeah. Because but... also, she was, I feel like she was the one who also posed as somebody and was getting their prescriptions filled or something. There was some other element to her. Oh, very interesting. Thank you, Rhiannon, for the nice little link back there. Yeah, I very did much enjoyed enjoy that. that little link, yeah. So Scott and his pal at Rigby headed back to Scott's flat to set about their plan. They lifted the remaining parts of Sylvia's body and put her into rucksacks. Cool, calm and collected, the pair casually put the bags on their shoulders and headed out for what looked like to the casual observer a jog, a normal jog. No one spotted anything unusual about the pair whilst they were out running. They must have dressed the part too. They headed then to a building site called Glenside, which was littered with partially built houses, and then to a house that was familiar to Scott. Because between the phone call and Rigby arriving in Omar... Scott had already buried some of Sylvia's body there. I don't know why he then needed Paul Rigby to help him bury the remaining parts of her body there, but he did. He wanted to implicate him, possibly anyway. But um, also, as maybe a fall he couldn't guy. carry everything, whereas Rigby's a soldier, so he's strong. Well, no, he's, yeah. he's a bodybuilder, but maybe he just he couldn't do the whole thing himself. Yeah, Maybe one be. of them had to be a lookout, I don't know. Yeah, who knows, but either way, he recruits Rigby to do this, and yeah, they dump the rest of Sylvia's remains there. When the job was done, it would be fair to presume that Scott felt some sort of relief now. He could go about his life once again without impending fatherhood hanging over him, but actually any relief he did feel would prove to be short-lived, thankfully. Oh, good, because I, we always say this, don't we? But isn't it horrible when someone gets to go on with their life not having the fear yeah. of the door knock and you just want them to live in fear that the next time someone knocks on the door, it's the police because you want them to at least feel something. This or guy, I doubt they... he did. I bet he thought he was so fucking brilliant and he'd got rid of her and nobody would ever know. And I, yeah, I hate he... people like that. He had such an ego that he would have thought, I'm brilliant, I've executed this plan perfectly and I'm going to get away with this. For me, I, even if, you know, people like David Fuller we've talked about before, so he was a um, double murderer and a necrophile and he got away with his crimes for decades. And I think he did worry that there would be a knock at the door at any time and was probably always looking over his shoulder. But even when criminals have that anxiety... It still bothers me massively that they still get to live 30 years of their life, have a family, go on holiday, get promoted at work, do all the normal things, enjoy Christmases. They get all of that before they finally get caught and put yeah. away behind bars. That still bothers me massively. Yeah, makes you so angry. So fortunately, yeah, this relief that Stephen Scott felt here would have been very short-lived. In the aftermath of Sylvia's murder, Scott joined in with the search teams tasked with finding her. Um, at the moment, she was still just a missing person to everybody else. He knows oh, that she's dead. Of course he joined in searching. Of course he did. I know, you, I know they have to. Before. Of yeah. course they have to, but at the same time, it pisses me off that they do. But I also think they, yes, they have to because they've got to keep up appearances. You know, I know she's dead because I've killed her, but I need to join in on the search so that it looks like I'm innocent and, you know, I can help. But actually, I think a lot of the time they're really getting off on it. And mm -hmm. we see them, don't we, with Babes in the Wood, for example. We see them ingratiate themselves with the police officers who are conducting the, the search. Because, and the family, because they want that inside information to maintain a, a level of control of, you know, I'm going to get away with this. Yeah, they know, they don't know anything or they're thinking this and I can feed them some information that takes them further down that wrong path. So yeah, very common thing to do, but I think they also get off on it. Scott was interviewed by the police on the 20th of April, which is kind of understandable because he, to all intents and purposes, was um, Sylvia's boyfriend. Yes, they'd split up briefly, but the police are going to go knocking at his door. Of course they are at some point. So he told the police that he'd only been actually going out with Sylvia for about six weeks and then they had split up. He claimed he last saw her at the end of March when she told him that she was pregnant. He claimed to the officers that she'd telephoned him on the evening of Friday the 3rd of April and then made plans to visit his flat the following morning. And then in a subsequent interview, he claimed he was informed by his friend Jane, 14-year-old Jane, 
that Sylvia had in fact called at the flat on the Friday evening after 11pm when Scott wasn't home. He said then that she never turned up on that Saturday morning as planned and the last time he'd spoken to her was on the telephone on the Friday evening when she said she was going to come round in the morning. So yeah, he's kind of saying, you know, that's the last time I spoke to her. Um, She was going to come over on the Saturday. She never did. And actually, Jane told me that in the end, she came over on the Friday night, but I was out. So I didn't see her. And I've not seen her since way before that call. While making these statements to the police, Scott dropped the name of a man he insisted was the lover of Sylvia, claiming she was having a sexual relationship with him, presumably to try and remove suspicion from himself. So, you know, he's just doing that classic. Actually, she was, you know, seeing another guy and she was probably, he was probably saying she'd been cheating on me with him and she was in love with him and that's who you need to go and speak to. Police were suspicious, but without a body, they had very little to go on. And eight weeks passed. The Flemings were beyond themselves with worry at their sister's disappearance. Because, again, you know, I just want to re-emphasise that point. No body has been found. This is not a murder investigation. To all intents and purposes, their sister is a missing person. This is a missing person's inquiry. She has disappeared and she has not been seen or heard of for eight long weeks. And that would have been torturous for Josie and Kathleen. I can't imagine how that must have felt for them. Their 17-year-old sister, they know she's pregnant and she's disappeared and there is just no trace of her. I just can't imagine that. Yeah, you'd be holding on to that hope, but at the same time torturing yourself with the thought that maybe she's not coming back and you'd be wanting... And eight weeks, like, it's so that's long. two months, that is actually mental. It's just a really, really long time. If you think of what happens in the space of eight weeks and if you think about her sister's little one, the difference in a child in eight weeks, you know, they're thinking, well, where's your auntie? I just, yeah, just these sisters who are so close and she's well liked by all her fam- family and friends. She's a popular girl. And I imagine as well, even if you've got your suspicions about Scott, he's there every day you're looking. He's got all his little creepy friendship group mm. hanging out with him. You'd, As sisters, you'd be worried about that. And they obviously have been worried about him in the past. Yeah, the whole thing, it would just be torturous for this family. And although they had concerns around Scott and they knew that relationship had been volatile, to say the least, Scott was manipulative and I could see him, yeah, I could see him trying to sort of win them over almost, to charm them and to get them on side and to allay any fears or suspicions that they may have had around him. And the police were probably hoping that he would do something they you know they had their suspicions but unless somebody does something what are they going to act on exactly and the family searched every single day they wanted nothing more than for their baby sister to come back home and scott seemed to be doing okay at this time presumably still exerting his control and fear over john jane and his friend paul rigby but actually he couldn't control rigby as well as he could control the younger john and jane And things came to a head now, really, because on the 30th of May, which was a Saturday, Paul Rigby was spotted by officers in the grounds of Grange Park holding an air rifle. He was so scared of his controlling friend that he had manufactured his own arrest. During his time being questioned, he admitted to Royal Ulster Constabulary detectives that he had information about the whereabouts of Sylvia's body. So on Sunday the 31st, following that tip, The police carried out a search of the building site where Sylvia's remains had been dumped and it wasn't long before they found her, very sadly. And I kind of understand Paul Rigby's behaviour here. It's, you know, this was like a real cry for help. I need the police to come to me. I can't go to the police. I can't pluck up the courage to do that. I need them to come to me and just say, why the fuck are you in a park with an air rifle? And maybe when they're there in my presence, I can just say you know actually there's a bit more going on I think he was almost having a bit of a breakdown perhaps at this point and this is how it had come to a head for him and maybe he didn't want to be seen as a grass so I didn't go to the police myself they happened to find me yeah I do agree with you though I think it's he's really struggled with everything um it's a long time eight weeks yeah and it's a weird way to get arrested 
but but I can understand it on but so I many can, levels. Yeah, I can. Because I, weirdly, and I, I, I'll never be in this situation. I know I won't. I can say that with some certainty. But it's kind of, I could see me doing something like that, something that's sort of unrelated, but would draw the police's attention to me so that I could then just, you know, let it all out. So I, I do understand where it's coming from. It's hard for me to articulate that but in my own head it totally makes sense but I can't I can't really convey why um, no so I'm, police... I'm with you I, I get it I good I I'm get glad that I'm, he I'm not needed the only one. he needed to do something to get the police to come and get him because then he's not gone to the police yeah. they've come to him he's almost can have that reassurance in his own mind I think it's almost like well. it, it's almost like he wanted the police to come and rescue him and that was a way of him doing yeah, that. So I, I think agree. If, if we'd not seen him brandishing an air rifle in this park, you may have seen him at the top of a tall building threatening to jump. Something was coming Or driving for him. his car dangerously, so they had to yeah, pull him over. Exactly. There was something, you know, this was a cry for help and it was just a blatant um, request for the police to enter his orbit so that he could just spill his guts. Because for eight long weeks, he'd probably had sleepless nights thinking, why have I allowed myself to get involved in this? Maybe Stephen Scott did kill her, despite him saying that it was actually John. Maybe he has killed her. Maybe I'm going to get set up for this. Maybe that's why he brought me in. My whole world's going to come crashing down. So we'll find out what what, um, happened to poor Rigby uh, as a result of his involvement a bit later on. Police sealed off the building site and brought the forensic teams in. In the dining room of the half-built house where Sylvia was buried, they initially had to remove 15 19-inch concrete blocks from a sub-floor. Under the blocks, the plastic sheeting of the damp-proof course was cut open and officers noticed the disturbed earth underneath. As they began to dig, the officers were hit with a strong, sickening stench, described as like a sewer which only got worse the more soil that was removed. I think it's really horrible that he's chosen actually what would have been a very successful burial site if nobody had been told because these houses would have been built and unless they were knocked down for any reason and you found bones, Mm. why would you, apart from the police obviously being tipped off, why would they be dug up? I think, I think um, you know, had there not been a tip-off, Sylvia's remains, and, you know, had there not been a tip-off and had the police not got any further evidence to uh, really kind of arrest Stephen Scott and maybe he'd have confessed, had none of that happened, her body would have never been found because, you know, as I hate to say it, but it was a, a, an amazing place to dispose of her remains. And it's actually quite common that building sites are used for that purpose. And there's probably lots of missing people, presumed dead, who have been murdered, whose remains have been disposed of in building sites. And I live in a new build house. It was built a couple of years ago. And um, yeah, it could be, who knows? I'm, you know, I'm, I'm trying, not trying to be dramatic for just the fun of it, but I'm just trying to make the point that it does happen because it's actually a logical place to dispose of a body. So, yeah, who knows? Uh, you know, maybe somebody is sat in their dining room right now and unbeknownst to them, you know, three feet beneath them is the remains of a, a missing person who, whose body has never obviously been found. Police uncovered what they thought was a soft, flesh-coloured object at first glance, and this was identified later by Dr Michael Kemp as a piece of human thigh which had been cut off at the knee. They also uncovered a second human thigh two human legs, two human arms and a human head. Sylvia's remains were ultimately identified through her dental records. This was just, I mean, to say it was an undignified end to her life is just such an understatement. For her body to have been dismembered in this way and disposed of in this way, and for her body to have been identified only by dental records, I can't imagine what that would have done to the family. And actually, yeah. there, there's a horrible twist in this tale, which I will come on to shortly, and it's actually worse. Police wasted no time now. Just hours after the discovery, Scott was arrested for the alleged murder of Sylvia Fleming. Upon his arrest, he said he had nothing to say and then appeared to faint and had to be helped to his feet. Uh. And I, but I thought that, I mean, I do think that's interesting. I think that was a genuine reaction that he had no control over. And he is this calm, calculated, manipulative, egocentric guy. But I think, 
yeah, he must have he must have been so overwhelmed in that moment, thinking, oh my God, that's it, the game is up. I kind of hope he did. I thought it was just him being stupid and dramatic, but I kind of yeah. hope he did have a, a physical reaction I because he so. deserves some sort of anguish. Yeah, and, and that would have been a culmination of eight weeks of, of, to be fair to him, you know, mental torture of, oh my God, maybe they are going to find me out and there is going to be a knock at the door. And then it happens and it is, it's just a, a bolt out of the blue still and a real shock and yeah, he, he literally collapses. Um, so Stephen Scott was brought to Omar RUC station and interviewed in the presence of his solicitor. Over the course of a series of interviews, he lied continually to the police and changed his story a number of times. Initially, he claimed he hadn't seen Sylvia when she had called around at his flat on that Friday night. Then he performed a complete U-turn and said that he had been there and he had seen her. He said they had sex and then she left soon afterwards. He told officers he learnt she was missing on the Sunday afternoon. In his second interview, he profusely denied any involvement in her murder. Realising that they were now on to him, though, he decided to change tact and pass the blame to 15-year-old John. He claimed that whilst he did tie Sylvia up and purposefully inject her with insulin, he protested it was John who actually killed her. He insisted John was to blame, saying that he had pulled and tightened the cord that was wrapped around Sylvia's neck for some kind of sick joke, but that it had gotten out of hand and that they had then realised that she had stopped breathing. He claimed he then lifted her up into the attic with John's help and then just headed off swimming. He told the officers that it was John and Jane who said that he needed to dispose of the body. According to Scott, it was John who suggested they cut her up. He went on to describe in detail how he callously dismembered Sylvia's body, reiterating several times that it was John who had pulled the cord resulting in her death. It was put to him during his interview that he had made that comment to John and Jane about wanting to kill the mother of his unborn child. He said he didn't remember saying that, but that he might have done, but if he did, it was just as a joke. During his interview, Scott repeatedly went into detail about tying Sylvia up and injecting her with insulin, and he went on and on about the dismemberment and disposal of her body. And it was kind of like he was basically seeking a thrill in reenacting this out loud and I think he was I think he absolutely was reliving this and talking about it and there was an element of showing off and bravado of I did this I'm a real man I did this but he was also reliving that and getting off on it Scott kept changing his story in subsequent interviews. In his third police interview, he said he was present when Sylvia died. In his fourth, he claimed he was in the toilet. He said he tried to revive her upon finding her unresponsive. However, evidence later showed he made no attempts at administering basic first aid. And he was a firefighter, so he was trained in administering first aid. And the pathologist was able to say no first aid was administered on her. The police secured enough evidence to charge Stephen Scott and he was remanded in custody in June of 1998, so that's like three months after Sylvia was murdered. On the 28th of March in 1999, so the following year, Scott's trial commenced. He denied the murder charge but admitted to dismembering and disposing of and concealing a body. His cunning and deceitful play did not persuade the jury and a unanimous guilty verdict was reached after just two hours of deliberations. Sentencing Scott to life imprisonment, the judge described him as a thoroughly evil and ordered him to serve a minimum of 19 years behind bars. The judge told him, The manner in which her body was disposed of after her murder is surely the most gruesome. I am satisfied that you, Scott, not only deliberately killed this young girl, but that you planned that killing and carried it out in circumstances so squalid that they would revolt any right-thinking person. Scott gave no reaction in the dock, but there were cheers of yes from the public gallery. I feel like 19 as a minimum term is incredibly low. Yeah, I agree. I don't know if that's just my opinion, but see if anybody of our listeners agree as yep. well with us. John, who was 15 at the time, was also convicted of helping to dispose of a body. That's all he was convicted of. His age and the control that Scott had over him was taken into account, and John was convicted and sentenced to two and a half years in November 2000. Jane was taken to trial, but her defence argued that she'd only helped to wash the body and actually there really isn't much information about Jane at all, and it is probable that 
the trial was kind of like halted and abandoned halfway through or that she was acquitted. But yeah, there is just no information about her. So I I don't think she was convicted of of any crime in relation to this. She was 14 at the time. And yeah, I I think um, there would have been a lot of mitigation around her age. I think it's good that these two were kept completely um, anonymous anonymous, because I do see lots of grooming and and control here and I really really hope that both of them I think I said before about how it just that I don't know anything about their backgrounds I don't know what kind of people they were but whatever you've done to then be 14 and 15 and faced with a dead body of a murdered woman Mm. that is a trauma in itself and I really really hope that they were given some sort of way to move from that on from it move past that I think there was a real hope of rehabilitation for those two, and I really do hope that that happened. Yeah, I hope they've gone on to to lead normal lives. Paul Rigby, um, so that's Stephen Scott's 19-year-old friend who was in the army, who was married to the bigamist, was convicted of perverting the course of justice and assisting with the disposal of a body. Sentencing Rigby to two and a half years, the judge described him as a thoroughly weak and ineffectual person who had been ripe for Scott's domination. He told him, It is now accepted you engineered your own arrest in order to disclose to police what you knew about the death and disappearance of Sylvia Fleming. This was directly instrumental in securing the arrest of the person responsible. Without your intervention, it is possible this matter would never have been resolved, which I agree with. I think that Stephen Scott would have gotten away with this and that some couple with a young family would have been sat in their dining room on that housing estate, none the wiser that a body was underneath um, where where they sat. I think that it was a very smart move, and annoyingly, and I'm so grateful that Rigby did admit where, where it was because, yeah, it could have been... It could, it could have never been unearthed that she was there. Yeah, it could have been an unsolved case that we would have still been covering now um, and saying that, you know, it's highly likely that she was murdered, but we don't know what happened to her. Um, and I think it's, you know, I, I, do, I am pleased that Paul Rigby wasn't set up by Stephen Scott as the fall guy here, because I, I wonder if that was part of his plan in getting him over from England to help with this maybe he would have I don't know maybe he was gonna try and claim that he was more involved in this than he was I don't know the Flemings had secured justice for their little sister at last but of course nothing was going to bring her back all they had left were the fond memories they had of their precious time together years after their tragedy unfolded another unexpected knock at the door came for Josie in 2012 It was a family liaison officer and she wanted to talk to the family. Josie presumed it was to do with the impending release of Scott, which wasn't far away, but it was nothing to do with that. Her family suffered another fatal blow and again faced a journey through hell. When they had buried their baby sister, they hadn't buried all of her. Police had, unknowingly to the Flemings, retained some of Sylvia's body parts, including her unborn child. Uh, I mean, it's just doesn't bear thinking about oh my gosh it's just terrible so did the police want to to admit this now so that they could give them back her body parts or was this that someone else had uncovered this and wanted the family to know I, i think time had passed and some kind of review had exposed that okay, you know, yeah. actually, actually this has happened and we need to do the right thing and tell the family and it's too late but we need to tell them so I don't know why it happened how it happened um, processes weren't followed and it was covered up and later they were told and yeah it's just another blow do we for know them, if, isn't if it? they ever got to bury the rest of the remains do we know anything about that or uh, i i don't know i don't no. know if the police mm-hmm. are dis, dis i hate to use the word disposed of but if they are no, disposed but potentially of yeah that oh in goodness. their own way or yeah i, I don't kind know. of feel I, like i wouldn't want to want to know yeah i don't know i don't I know do, it just oh, that's it awful. just makes me feel so incredibly sad because it's just a further indignity to sylvia's memory Stephen Scott was released from prison in 2017. He returned to his hometown of Warren Point in County Down, where it was reported that the local community was incredibly concerned about his presence. Understandably so. 
Neighbours were quoted as saying, people don't want him here. And one person said, we understand they don't want him in Omar, but we don't want someone as sick and evil as him in our community. Child killer had been painted onto a fence outside his home, and actually his freedom didn't last long. Some years later, in April 2023, the now 51-year-old Scott had his lifelong licence revoked and was returned to prison when he was found in possession of a considerable amount of ammunition. He claimed he'd been working on a farm and that he'd been asked by his employer to try to get weaponry to deal with the vermin on the farm. The court wasn't satisfied and the district judge, Rosie Waters, remanded him back into custody, where Rhiannon says she believes he he remains to this day. Personally, if I'm really honest at this point, I think think that probably was... um, an innocent explanation i think he probably had been asked you know there's vermin uh, on the on this farm you know can you just sort sort it out and get rid of it and he'd he'd got a hold of a gun or some ammunition and and it was to i don't think he was planning anything else i think it's just his reputation now precedes him and you know he was fucked the minute he was busted with that they were never going to believe the boy who cried wolf and yeah he was thrown back into prison so there is more justice there i think because i agree with you beth and i think 19 years as a minimum term was quite a light sentence in the first place what an awful horrible story and just really i feel is. so sorry for all of the Fleming's family, obviously Sylvia the most, but her sisters and her little niece or nephew and, yeah, just her friends, everybody evolved. It's just awful. The saddest part to me is that these three sisters had endured this awful childhood and then, you know, as they're embarking on adulthood, they one of them gets a flat and then says to the other two, come and live with me. And they could have really had for an, for a period of time, you know, decent period of time, they could have had that real family unit that they had been deprived of really. And it could have been, yeah, the foundations of a, a really successful life for all of them. And the lives of Kathleen and Josie have been blighted by this understandably and this quest for justice and not being happy, the sentencing originally, and then, you know, what happened afterwards. And then obviously Sylvia was just robbed of of a life that she deserved to live and that she would have gone on to live. It's just, yeah, really, really sad. So I'm sorry to leave it on such a, a sad point. Um, it's actually our season finale next week, so you will have a break from us soon. And um, that's going to be a story from Bethan. So we will see you next week for that. And then we'll be back a couple of weeks after. See you then, guys. Bye. Hi angels, it's your girl Louise Rumble and I'm the host of the Open House podcast. Therapy quite literally changed my life and sent me straight into my hot healing girl era. Now each week I share my story, the good, the bad and the downright juicy and chat with some of the world's best therapists, psychologists and wellness experts. From love, sex and dating to attachment styles, nervous system regulation, wellness hacks, hormone balancing and more, nothing is off the table. I've emptied my bank account on therapy and healing so you don't have to. So if you're ready to leave the past in the past and build the future you've always deserved, me and my favorite experts are waiting for you on the Open House podcast. Listen now wherever you stream your podcasts and I cannot wait to meet you.